This is Truth and Focus, your radio program for worldview talk and issues that matter, with Josh Cumston and Gordon Teeson, broadcasting from the studio at Nebraska Christian Schools. Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm your host, Gordon Teeson. On today's program, we'll be listening to David Wheaton. He has a nationally syndicated radio talk show called The Christian Worldview. He's also written the best-selling book, University of Destruction. In addition to that, he's a former professional tennis player, ranked in the top 12 in the world at one time and played at Wimbledon. David was at Nebraska Christian recently and spoke to our students, and we'll be joining David with the chapel message. Let's go to that message right now. For those of you who follow NFL football, you know that these coaches are just, they basically live in a film room during the season. They're watching film constantly of other teams. They're trying to get the scouting report on how the defenses and offenses work on these other teams. You get quarterbacks like Peyton Manning or Russell Wilson. These guys are just constantly just known for being in there, spending so much time scouting the opposing defenses so they can be prepared when they actually get into the game to be able to execute under pressure to form a game plan. We talked about mission, but not only should we have a mission, but did you know that Satan has a mission too? We read this verse in session one, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The, The key word is here is seeking. He's trying. This is his effort. This is his goal in life. He's just trying to ruin people. He's the opposite of God. God's trying to save people, trying to help people be in right relationship with him. Meanwhile, Satan is trying to do the opposite. Fallen angel, falls, opposes God, thinks delusionally he's going to win, but is trying to take as many people as he can with him. Now, he's happy to have non-Christians and keep them from coming to Christ, but he also wants to take Christians as well and, and get them out of a close, intimate relationship with Christ. Pastor John MacArthur says, Satan and his forces are always active, looking for opportunities to overwhelm the believer, not just unbelievers, the believer, with temptation, persecution, and discouragement. He will do what he can to drag the Christian out of fellowship with Christ and out of Christian service. He can't make you lose your salvation, but he can drag you out of fellowship with Christ and out of Christian service if we give in to the temptations he puts in front of us. The good news is the devil is a very predictable opponent. When I played tennis, it was always great when I played an opponent who was predictable. Oh, I knew the guy just didn't one shot not very well. He had a good shot over here. So I knew how they played. That was helpful because they wasn't, there was no surprises. And that really is the way Satan is as well. He just keeps hammering away at our flesh whether through trying to have us enter into the wrong kinds of relationships in life, whether they're bringing uh, disturbing or discouraging or destabilizing circumstances in life, whether through failure or even success in life, whether through something we see in a billboard and TV on the internet, whether it's some philosophy in a school class, whether it's alcohol or drugs or pornography. He just keeps kind of feeding these things and just throwing everything against the wall, hoping something that's going to stick in our life. And like it says, he has our flesh on his side. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Don't be deceived about your flesh. Because our flesh 
doesn't want naturally to go the way of Christ. Even when we're saved, we still retain that human part of us that doesn't want to go God's way. Now, God gives us means to overcome that flesh, but there's still something a part of us while we live on this human earth that doesn't, that resists wanting to go God's way. And Satan works on that through bringing us into these things that he knows will take us off track. So really, he's just a three-trick pony. We briefly previewed these in the last. We talked about the three pillars of peril. This is the scouting report that everything you're going to face in high school and college and beyond, I think can be summed up in these three temptations to your flesh. Number one, sexual immorality. This is a battle for your body. We'll explain that later. Number two, drugs and alcohol. Mind, spirit-altering circumstances, things, substances. This is a battle for your spirit. The third pillar of peril, humanism, the non-Christian worldview. This is a battle for your mind. We're going to quickly go through these today as the scouting report here in session number two. We'll start out with sexual immorality. Here's a fact. The college campus is the most sexually immoral environment in America. Think back to that quote I gave you in session one about there's a new form of social and sexual indoctrination on campuses. This is what I mean by that. The college campus is the most sexually immoral environment place in America. I went back to Stanford about, I don't know, five, six years ago. I was out there for, I was watching the NCAA tennis tournament was being held at Stanford. And I got to Stanford. I just happened to pick up the Stanford Daily newspaper, the college newspaper on, on campus. And first article above the fold, what do I see? The one day I was there, Students had more opinions than clothes at Exotic Erotic. And Exotic Erotic is this annual party they have at Stanford where students are only allowed to wear two articles of clothing. And so here you got a guy with a, a knit hat on and some caution tape wrap around his midsection. And you think here, at one of the highest institutions of higher education in this country, one of the best schools in the country, This is the the above-the-fold front-page news on the college newspaper that students had more opinions than clothes at Exotic Erotic. And inside, there was an article inside, another very uh, sexually explicit article on some other type of sexuality. And the the third page, I won't even show it. So this, this mentality of this sexual indoctrination is pervasive throughout the college campus. At Yale, one of the greatest, again, greatest institutions of higher education. They have something called Sex Week. And this is something that travels around to different campuses around the country. Not just at Yale. This is off the Yale website. Sex Week is an interdisciplinary sex education program designed to pique students' interest through creative, interactive, and exciting programming. Renowned professionals from a wide variety of industries, i.e., the porn industry, will convene at Yale to challenge students' conceptions of sex and sexuality. Challenge the conceptions that you've been learning growing up in your homes and here at Nebraska Christian. And question, create doubt, the way sex is presented in our society and in your Christian homes. Page two, right off the website, we strive to get beyond the awkwardness, the discomfort, and the taboo of conventional sex education programs by treating sexual behavior as the reality it is, not as it has been portrayed in the Bible. I added in the Bible. 
That's what they mean. Page three. There is no ideology behind Sex Week. Its mission is simple. Now, we just talked about mission in the first session. Mission is all about ideas. It's all about ideology. That's what a mission is. It's having an idea about how I want to live my life. This is so kind of humorous that these people who are purportedly so smart think that we are so stupid that they can say there is no ideology behind Sex Week and then in the very next sentence say its mission is simple. Do you get that? I mean, how, how stupid do they think we are? To present students with a range of perspectives about sexuality to get them talking so they can begin to reconcile serious issues of love, sex, and relationships in their lives, let the discussion begin. That's Sex Week at Yale. That's indicative of what college campus is like when it comes to sexual morality all across this country. So why? Why is there so much sex, immoral sex, on college campuses? Well, number one, I think there's an environment for it. And that can be really summed up in the terms of a co-ed dorm. When I went to college way back when at Stanford, we were mandated that we had to live in a co-ed dorm. Now, isn't that interesting for a very liberal institution to be mandating anything? I thought they were all for freedom to make your own decisions in life and where you want to live in life. It's very interesting that they forced young men and young women to live in the same dorms, often the same floor, very little oversight, no oversight basically, of what went on in those particular environments in the dorm, very little oversight on drinking or drug use and so forth, because they know very well what's going to happen when you put young men and young women in that kind of environment. That's one reason there's so much sex. Number two, the education, the the class, the coursework itself is full of this type of sexual indoctrination if you go to university of michigan and by the way there's all kinds of classes like this all different colleges across the country i only had space to put one you can go to michigan you can take a class on how to be gay male homosexuality and initiation the worldview on campus is also given over the ethic is well there's no such thing as god therefore you decide what is sexually right and sexually wrong Number four, there's a result of this type of sexual environment on college campuses. According to the Chicago Sun-Times, two-thirds, or maybe that's according to a book, two-thirds of students will contract a sexually transmitted disease sometime during their college life. And according to the Chicago Sun-Times, only 14% of students will leave college with their virginity intact. There's a goal for all this, and I talked about it in terms of the co-ed dorm. They know very well that when they have you in the dorm room, in a co-ed dorm situation, when there's no monitoring of alcohol and drug use, they know that you will be broken down morally in the dorm room so that you can then be broken down philosophically in the classroom. Because our, our philosophy in life, our theology in life, always follows the way we live morally. If we want to live sexually immoral lives, we are always going to develop philosophies in life to allow for ourselves to live the way we want to live morally. That's the, I think, the unstated goal of the dorm room situation in college. Now, God has a standard for, for sex, and it may not be what you think it is. The standard is pure thoughts. I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He wants us to have not only just pure actions, as he talks about in Hebrews 13, he says marriage is to be held in honor among all, 
And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators or the sexually immoral, those who have sex outside of marriage, and idolaters God will judge. Now let's be clear. God is not a killjoy on sex. He invented it, okay? He's not unclear about what it means to be morally pure, too. He basically says, enjoy the gift I've given you of sex and engage in that gift I gave you, but just within one parameter. There's a boundary I want for your good and for my glory within marriage because he loves us enough and wants to protect us from destroying our souls by pursuing the way what the environment in college wants us to do. And he'll give you the grace to do it, by the way, too. It's not like, here, good luck to you. He gives you the resources to be able to be morally pure. That may be hard to believe in the world we live in, but he does. It's like a beautiful car that God gives us. Think of your, your ideal, your dream car. For some of you, you might want a Ferrari. You might want a, a Range Rover. Uh, you might want a BMW. Think of, a, the, of sex as a beautiful car that God gives us. And when we're 14 years old and the, and the driving age is 16, he puts his beautiful car in your garage, flips you the keys and said, enjoy the car. Just make sure you have a driving license or a marriage license before you drive it. Now, if you choose to make the decision, if you drive it illegally beforehand and you drive it recklessly, you're going to destroy the car. You may even destroy yourself. But if you drive it as intended, if you wait and restrain until that age when God says, drive the car and enjoy the car, you're going to have great blessing because you're going to be enjoying the gift in the way that it was intended. And that's the way it is with, with sex in our life too. I'm not here to tell you that it's a bad thing. Oh, sex is a very good thing. But it's to be enjoyed within the parameter God gave us in marriage. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden. Eat from all the fruit in the garden that you want. But just from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of good life, don't eat from those trees because it's going to hurt you if you do. That's the same way it is with sex. Enjoy sex within marriage. It's for procreation, enjoyment, for intimacy, for unity with your wife or your husband. Wonderful, good thing, not bad. But do it within marriage and you're going to have great blessing. You're going to honor me if you do that. Now, college has a very different and Satan has a very different standard for sex. And it's this. Do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. So I would define sexual immorality as any sexual thoughts or actions with someone who is not your wife or husband. It's very different. You can see there's a huge difference between God's standard and the world's standard for for sex. There's a few things about sexual immorality that I think it's important to understand. Number one, it's very powerful. It's one of the most powerful temptations and driving forces in the world. Number two, it's addictive. That when you get engaged in sexual morality, either physically or through pornography or through lust, the flesh can never be satisfied. It always craves for more. It's always going to want more. You'll never be able to be satisfied by it. Number three, sexual immorality is deadly. It destroys the potential even of some of the strongest Christians. Think about King David, a man after God's own heart, lusted after Bathsheba, soon engaged in adultery, sexual immorality with her, lost his child, nearly nearly lost his kingdom, led him to commit murder. It destroyed the potential of David until he repented of it. And it's lurking. It happens suddenly. It's closer than we think at any given time. 
There's a passage in Scripture that describes these four things and a couple other that we're just going to read together here from Proverbs chapter 7. For at the window of my house, I looked through my window and saw a young man. And this could be a young woman too. This is not one way or the other. Just for this course of this passage, it's a young man. Void of understanding, passing along the street near her corner. And he took the path to her house in the evening. Notice what time of day it is. And there a woman met him with provocative clothes and a crafty heart. Notice how she's dressed. She was loud and rebellious. At times she was outside in the open square, lurking in every corner. Notice where she is. She's seemingly everywhere. So she caught him and kissed him, and with a bold face she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. She's not a secular woman. She's a religious person. She's a professor. That's what it means to have peace offerings and paid vows. That's a religious act of service she was doing. So I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. I have spread my bed with tapestry. I have perfumed my bed. Come, let us take our fill of love, actually lust, until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband, she's a married woman, is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home on the appointed day. And with her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. And here's that lurking, that suddenly part. Immediately, he went after her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost him his life. You know, we are in an agricultural community here right now. A lot of people out here probably raise cattle and so forth. And those cattle are taken off. They go to the, the slaughter yards. Do you think that a cow, before it's being slaughtered, knows it's going to be slaughtered when it's driving there? No. It doesn't know. As it's going down the conveyor belt, probably doesn't know. It doesn't know until moments before, or even probably when it's actually happening, that this is the end for it. It's the same thing with sexual morality as well. And this passage ends like this. Now therefore, my sons and my daughters, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down and numerous are her slain. Her house is the way to hell or Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Sexual morality is powerful. It's addictive. It's deadly. And it happens suddenly. But you can overcome it. It's not something that can't be overcome. You may look at all the world and say, everyone's involved in this. It's true, everyone is. But the Christian's called to live in a way glorifying to God and we can overcome it. And there's a plan to overcome it. I wrote down six things. A plan for purity. Number one is commit to it. You have to want it. You have to be on a mission. You have to realize how important it is to be morally pure, whether you're unmarried or married. By the way, this doesn't stop like when you get married. All of a sudden it's like, whew, I'm married. Now I can just be unrestrained sexually. No, not at all. God says when you're married, then you're to be being sexually involved with your wife or your husband. It's not like with them or whoever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. No. So it's a matter of whether you're single or married. It's a matter of learning to restrain our sexual desires to make them in line with God. And he gives us the ability to do that. Number one, commit to it. And if you haven't been sexually pure in your life, this is the great thing about God. He's the God of second chances. He gives us a way to 
be involved sexually against him and all of a sudden to repent of that, to forgive us and give us the power to be sexually pure. What a great thing. This is the way it was in my own life until I was saved when I was 24. I was not morally pure in my life. But from those years all the way until I get married and into the marriage now, God has given me the supernatural ability to be morally pure. Not to say I've never had a lustful thought, but it's not the habitual practice of my life anymore as it was before I was saved. Number two, guard your eyes. Job, it was said about him, made a covenant with his eyes that he would not look at a woman to lust for her. Because when we take things in through our eyes, they go next into our thoughts. Guard your thoughts. The Bible says take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So when we guard what comes in our eyes, when we think about what we're thinking, because sometimes lustful thoughts can come into our mind just sitting there without any stimulation coming in through our mind, whether through a movie or a TV show or the internet or anything, we need to guard our thoughts as well. Number four, don't feed your flesh. The Bible says, make no provision for your flesh to feed its lust. We're all very, quote, environmentally sensitive. In other words, if you go to a basketball or soccer game here at school, everyone is just psyched. It's fun. It's a good time. It's a sporting event. When you go to a funeral, that environment causes everyone to be kind of like heads down, mourning, respect for the dead, and so forth. We are very much like that. It's the same thing with sexual morality as well. If we put ourselves in environments that are conducive to sexual morality, that impacts us. So don't put yourself in those environments. Next one is flee. It's the only temptation in all of life that God says not to face or to flee. Very noteworthy that is the case. The Bible says flee immorality. Every, every sin that a man faces is outside the body. Uh, the moral man sins against his own body. Flee it. And the last one is to dress with discretion. Help others not to lust. Doesn't mean you need to dress with a burlap sack or in a burqa. But you need to dress with discretion. I want to read just a short passage from Genesis 39 about Joseph because he gives such an amazing means of how he overcame this particular sexual immorality. If you look in Genesis chapter 39, if you have your Bible, I'm going to start reading in verse 6. It says this, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now Joseph, you remember, was one of Jacob's sons, one of his 12 sons, and he was the favorite of his father. And he told his brothers that they would be bowing down to him someday. Not a good thing to tell your older brothers. They were resentful of him. They actually sold him into slavery from Israel down to Egypt. Joseph gets sold into slavery in Egypt. He gets bought by the house of Potiphar, who's the captain of Pharaoh's guard, has a big position of prominence in Egypt. And so Joseph is working in Potiphar's house as the main steward of his house. And Potiphar's house is succeeding because of Joseph. And then we come across this verse. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about that after these events, that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. Now, this isn't very subtle. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except for you, because you are his wife. And here's the key sentence. How then could I do this great evil and sin 
against God. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. And now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him, the wife, caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand. And what did he do? He fled and went outside. When she saw that he left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought this Hebrew in to make sport of us. She went and falsely accused him, and Joseph actually went to jail for being falsely accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife, something he never tried to do. So as you read Joseph, what did he do? What did he say? He said, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? You notice how he didn't say, oh no, I cannot sleep with you because uh, I might get a sexually transmitted disease. He didn't say, I, you might get pregnant. We might have a child out of wedlock. Or your husband might be upset at me. I might lose my job. He didn't talk about the consequences, the earthly consequences of being involved with sexual morality. What did he say? How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? In other words, he knew very well that the biggest consequence of doing this would be to actually offend his God. More so than any of the consequences. Now you can think about consequences with regard to this. Good, do it. But the bigger thing is we love God so much that we don't want to offend him in whatever we do. And he did the second thing was he fled. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. He's the perfect example of how to overcome sexual morality, how he can do it and we can do it as well. Number two, moving right along. The second pillar of peril is alcohol and drugs. When I entered Stanford, within the first 10 minutes of being in my dorm room, barely had put my bags down. You can read about this. I write about this in the beginning of University Destruction. Teammates of my tennis team came in, pitchers of beer in hand, School hadn't even started, and the party had already started. The whole first week on campus was like this drunken, crazy party like you see on spring bake of students who goes down to Cancun. It was just a, a foretaste, so to speak, of what was to come in college. And the fact is that alcohol and drugs are more prevalent on college campuses than almost anywhere else in America. Again, so like sexual morality. Spring break drunkenness occurs multiple nights a week on campuses across the country. According to government websites, in the first three years, first four years of the Iraq War, 3,000 of our young men and women died in Iraq. During the same four years, approximately 6,000 students will die on college campuses through drugs and alcohol. So literally, you could say that it's almost more dangerous to be drinking and using drugs on college campuses than it is to be fighting a war with bullets flying by your head in Iraq. It is the lubricant that makes all other sin happen. It's like people drink to get drunk, to be sexually immoral. It's like it says here, alcohol plus sex equals a match made in hell. The perfect two first pillars of peril by the devil. Sexual morality and drugs and alcohol. Now God has a very clear standard for sobriety. He says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Isn't that interesting how he juxtaposes being drunk with alcohol with being filled with the Spirit? That's why we called it a battle for the Spirit. Remember that? Why is it a battle for the Spirit? Because you ever notice what they also they call, what alcohol is called? Spirits. 
that interesting how, the, how alcohol is often called come get drink spirits? Because it changes your spirit. And God says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. So I'm saying, if you want to be an overcomer over this, I would commit to avoiding drugs and alcohol, period, in college. Now, I don't say this by way of the Bible says that it is wrong to have a glass of wine. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. But it is wrong to have wine or alcohol or beer influence you. There's a fine line between having a glass of wine and not having it influence you and drinking and having it influence you, and that's sin. So I'm saying, why not live to a higher standard? There's a, there are good reasons not to drink in college and really drink in your whole life. I made that commitment because it's not only about not getting drunk and taking the chance of getting drunk, but it's also about the testimony, the perception that it gives to others when we drink. We have to be careful what kind of perception we give to others when we're drinking alcohol. For a weaker person who may not have the same amount of self-control you do, Fred over here is drinking, and he says, well, Fred's drinking, therefore I, should, I can and should too. Fred can't handle it. If you lead Fred into sin, you've just sinned. That's why I say commit to avoiding drugs for sure, always, and alcohol always too, because I think it's a good principle to have in your life. You don't take any chances of this particular temptation affecting you in the wrong way, but I don't say it as a way of that all drinking of alcohol is wrong. I don't think the Bible teaches that, but I think it's a good thing to instigate and implement in your life. You've all heard these first two pillars of peril, sexual morality and drugs and alcohol. We know these things, so why do we sometimes give in to these first two pillars of peril? I think it's because we know they're wrong, but our hearts are deceitful. Again, our flesh is inside of us pulling us to go the wrong way. Our enemy is deceptive. He makes these things very attractive to us. He always shows us the beautiful beginning of the way, but not the bitter end. And we sometimes forget our mission to be an overcomer. Let's move on to the third point, the third pillar of peril, which is humanism. It's a battle for your mind. Again, sexual morality, battle for your body, drugs and alcohol, battle for your spirit, And the third pillar of peril, humanism, a battle for your mind. There are two types of humanism. One is secular humanism. This is where man is God. And the second type of humanism is religious humanism, where man morphs God. There's a difference, but they're basically both the same thing. They're both human-based thinking rather than Bible-based thinking. Now, If you wanted to define some symptoms of secular humanism first, and I know some of you have been covering this in some of your classes here at school, they have beliefs just like Christians have beliefs. So they they are atheists. They don't believe there's a God, whereas Christians are theists. They believe in origins, a Big Bang myth, whereas Christians believe in creationism. Do they have beliefs about biology? Of course, they believe in the evolution myth. And we all deserve from, uh, evolve from an amoeba whereas Christians believe in a unique design by God. Do they have beliefs in a morality? Of course, their morality is relativistic. What's right for you may not be right for me, and that's okay. Whereas Christians believe in the objective truth of Scripture. Do they have a belief in an afterlife? Yes, it's game over. Whereas Christians believe that there is a literal heaven and a literal hell. And depending on what you do with Christ is what determines on where you spend eternity. Do they have a belief in sociology? In other words, the family, social structures. Yes. Why do you think same-sex marriage is so strongly, why are they trying to redesign what a family is in this country? Because they believe, they don't believe in dad and mom like Christians do. They believe in whatever family you want to be. Do they have beliefs in gender? Of course. They believe that not only women are equal to men, that women are better than men, and why even have men? 
and do they have a belief in a, a basis for their belief? Sure they do. The Humanist Manifesto, the writers of the New York Times, what you see in the media, what you see in Hollywood, these are all the, the core repository of where humanists get their wisdom, their truth. It's a religion, by the way. It's a philosophical, religious, and moral point of view as old as human civilization itself. It says this in the Humanist Manifesto. They just admit it, it's a religion. Don't ever anyone tell you that religion is not in our schools. We have an official religion in our schools. It's called humanism. It's faith in fairy tales, though. How can something come from nothing? How can something at rest explode into everything we see today? How can an explosion cause the perfect order we see in the universe? How can there be no transitional fossils between humans and apes and everything lower than in lower species? It's a faith in a fairy tale. But yet they somehow shame Christians, embarrass us into thinking that we're the ones that believe in fairy tales when it's just the opposite. They are the ones that are believing in an unfounded worldview. There's a second type of humanism that you're going to face if you go to a certain Christian college. It's called a religious humanism. This is also known as liberal Christianity, where the Bible is not to be taken literally or in context, but rather metaphorically. So therefore, the Bible isn't the inspired word of God, it's the words of man. That the miracles in the Bible, like Christ resurrecting from the dead, or Jonah being swallowed by a big fish, or the creation of the world, that's not literal, that's kind of, those are teach us kind of spiritual lessons. And that Jesus declaring himself to be the only way, well, that's kind of now, there's a lot, that's very, again, exclusivistic towards other religions in the world. So they slowly deconstruct all these things. And they have a Bible department, and they have chapel during the week. But what they teach in chapel and their Bible department, what the professors teach, is not biblical Christianity. And in some ways, it's far more confusing than what you might face on a secular college campus because they use a lot of the same words like God and Jesus and the Bible, but the meanings behind what they teach is so different than genuine biblical Christianity. And so that's why the, the higher number of percentage of students who go to a, quote, Christian college will say they've lost their faith because they go into this confusing environment where it's a lot of the same words they've heard growing up, but they have very different meanings to them and they get them very far away from the true Bible and the true gospel of Christ. So as we face humanism, we need to understand this, that the biblical worldview is defendable. That's what you're getting at this school, the biblical worldview. It's not only defendable, but it's far more defendable than any other worldview in the world. Now, they're not going to tell you that at college. They're going to think, oh, you're just blind faith. No, there is sound evidence and reason behind what Christians believe. Point two, understand this, that you need to start building your own biblical worldview so you can answer, for at least for yourself, some of the tough questions that are going to be presented to you on the college campus. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie that recently came out called God's Not Dead. Very good movie about a, a student your age who goes off to college, enters college, and he comes into his philosophy class, and the first thing his professor says as he comes into class is, I just want to establish one thing right now class on philosophy, that there's one overarching truth, and if you just accept it now, it will save us a lot of time. God is dead. And if you could just sign your name in this paper, we'll save time, we'll get on to the rest of the class. And this one student in the class says, grew up in a Christian home, he says, no, I can't sign that. No, I don't believe that. And the professor says to him, well, if you can't, if, you can't, if you're not going to sign this, then you need to show us why God is alive. You need to prove that in front of the class. So the whole movie's about this that a, a debate that takes place in the classroom. It's a very good movie. 
And it's done very well, by the way. It's been in the top five movies the last several weeks. The name of the main student that pushes back against the professor, his name is Josh Wheaton. Okay, because when you go to college, I want you to remember one verse. The message of the cross, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to your fellow students who are unsaved. It's foolishness to your professors. But to us, Christians, the ones who are being saved, it is the power of God. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Where is this smart college professor? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You know, when this book came out, University of Destruction, it came out in 2005. And you know how on Amazon people can write reviews about everything? They can write a review about books? Well, I'm on Amazon one day and I was kind of reading some of the reviews that people had written about University of Destruction. I came across this review. It said, Mr. Wheaton should take a look at other perils such as the Soviet-like indoctrination of young children into religious faith in this country. Kids go to college having been bombarded with Jesus and Christianity since they could remember. We should all be quite grateful to science for it has loosened the grip that religion has held upon mankind for centuries. As Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson have attested, it is religious in doctrine that enslaves the mind of man reason and rational thought should be our guides to find truth in life not belief in unseen supernaturals like gods and goblins and santas and elves and ogres and then he said this and are you ready for this i am not a supporter of burning books however if i were this one would be one of the first I would set a match to. Think about the kind of opposition that someone would get on Amazon and write that about a book, about biblical Christianity and trying to help Christian students live their faith out in college. Think about the kind of opposition that people like him, and he's not, he's not alone, that these college professors have and students on college, that they think what you believe is just crazy. But the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it truly is the power of God. So as you face these three pillars of peril on campus, it is going to be challenging. It's a battle for your body, your spirit, and your mind. Sexual morality, drugs and alcohol, and humanism, a non-Christian worldview. But those with a genuine faith, if you possess a true genuine faith, you can be an overcomer over these. There's many students who go to college and lose their faith, but the good news is many go there and actually grow stronger in their faith. So it it is possible it can be done, again, with Christ's help and when you keep your eye on the Word of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you again for this time. We know that uh, the devil has a mission to to walk about and seek whom he may devour, but we know you are so much more powerful than, than Satan. We know these pillars of peril are difficult. We know that we all face the temptation to sexual morality, the the temptation to use drugs and alcohol, the temptation to believe the world's wisdom, whether it has a secular slant to it, whether it has a religious slant to it, Lord. But the good news is you gave us your word of God that we can go to. There's so much evidence and reason. We don't have a, a blind faith, Lord. We have a reasoned faith based on evidence. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for what you're doing in the lives of these students and building their worldview. We pray that that would be a passion of their hearts to grow more deeply and closely to you so they can defend the gospel and and the faith when they bump up against the world. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
You've been listening to a message by David Wheaton at our chapel service at Nebraska Christian Schools. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Thiessen. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus. Thank you.